Our reading today is from Acts chapter 5, verses 12, to Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So Acts 5, 12, to 6, 7, starting on page 913 of the Church Bibles. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. <coughs> but when the officers came... They did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you have put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at the right hand at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this they were enraged and wanted to kill them, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honour by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I tell you, keep away from these men, and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Jesus is the Christ. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose 
despite the Hellenists against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, sit, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnamus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, let me say welcome again to Chalmers Church this morning, especially if anyone here is visiting for half term. You're joining us in the middle of our series, whole church series in Acts 1 to 13. But um, I'm going to pray before we get going on that passage. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear your voice and to respond in love, trust, obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me say up front that if you're not a Christian here, you are hugely welcome. We love it when people come and uh, kind of look in, watch what goes on, uh, what Christians believe. And I want to say up front, there is going to be a question for you to consider, but it will take a while to get there. So um, kind of stick with me as we go. Because first off, for those already following Jesus, I have a question for us. And the question is this, do you ever find yourself wishing for a quieter life? in church. If you're a regular here at Chalmers, I wonder if you ever find yourself hankering for a quieter Christian life, one that doesn't have conflict or strain or difficulties. Now, of course, many people have pointed out that the surefire way to a church without difficulty is to have a church without people. But of course, you then can't call it a church, because church is the gathering of God's family. As we've been hearing in Ephesians on Sunday nights, God wants us to gather and relate to each other. So that's a dead end. But I wonder, is there anything else we can do, kind of collectively as a church family, anything we could do or change to, to make things calm, smooth, pain-free? Is there a recipe for a quiet life as a church? Well, actually, yes, there is. And here it is. We could stop speaking about Jesus publicly. We could stop trying to grow and spread the good news of Jesus to others around us. If you want a quiet life as a church, stop speaking and sharing what the Bible says about Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, most obviously, because we heard in our reading that speaking about Jesus can, can get you into trouble with the authorities. But actually, it's more than just that. As we begin to see last week, this whole section of Acts describes a variety of difficulties that come along with progress and growth in the Christian church. And that's my first point today. You'll see from the back of the service sheet there are three points this morning. And the first one overviews the whole section before we zoom in for points two and three. So this whole big section from 4.32 all the way to 6.7, we've seen three scenes where the gospel is going forward. It's making progress. It's growing the church. And each time there are setbacks or pushbacks of various kinds. So let's begin with scene two where our reading began in 
Just listen out for how the church is growing in size and reputation. To verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. They were all healed. This community is growing in number and reputation. So even those around Jerusalem, too scared by the miracles to, to join in, nevertheless, they hold them in high esteem. Word is getting out. Something amazing is going on here. At which point, verse 17, the pushback begins. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Why did the religious authorities get involved? Filled with jealousy. Do you see what's happening there? It's the very growth, the growth in numbers, in reputation, as the Gospels proclaimed. That's what triggers the fight back. And if you look across to chapter 5, verse 28, it's the same. It's the fact the apostles have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. The words getting out, the gospels being heard, people are becoming Christians. That's when these authorities clamp down. You see, those two arrows on the screen are not just separate tracks, not just things that sit side by side, gospel progress, gospel pushback. No, let me add an arrow to make the point. The very growth triggers the religious political pushback. See, church life would have been a whole lot quieter if they just kept under the radar, kept to themselves, not spoken about Jesus to people who don't already follow him. And I'm sure it must have been tempting. I mean, it's been a temptation for numerous churches in our nation over recent decades. Just keep your head down. Don't proclaim clearly to others that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Just keep your eyes, your ideas to yourself. You know, focus on being an encouraging, comfortable club for Christians, a holy huddle. And gently, quietly, safely manage the decline of the gospel in this nation. But of course that's not what happens here in Acts, nor can it be what we do here at Chalmers. Because the risen Lord Jesus, the King of the world, has made it very clear that he wants his gospel to go to the ends of the earth. It's not easy, but it is his plan for this period of history. So there's our first point. Gospel growth always brings a variety of difficulties. And I've said variety there because persecution is only one of the three. Perhaps to our surprise, the, only two, the other two setbacks are also triggered by gospel growth. So remember back last week to scene one. If you weren't there, you can listen back online. But we looked in, in how, at how 432 to 37, the message of Jesus was growing a real, genuine community of huge generosity in the early church. But then there was a setback. Ananias and Sapphira fake it. They pretend to be generous. And it's a financial scandal. There's lying to God. Hypocrisy in the heart of the church. But notice again, it was the very gospel growth that triggered that pushback. It's only because of the genuine gospel-driven generosity uh, of the church that Ananias and Sapphira were ever tempted to fake it. More so rings still if you look at chapter 5 verse 3. This temptation to lie came from Satan himself. That is God's spiritual enemy. So this is his counterattack. 
You see, Satan won't just sit around as genuine gospel communities grow. He's well aware of the apologetic power. That is the, the genuine attractiveness of an authentic Christian community to a watching world. And so he tries to ruin it with fakery, with lies, hypocrisy, scandal in the church. Do you see the point? The genuine growth triggers the satanic fight back. If that early church hadn't been growing in generosity, community, witness, well then I'm sure Satan would have left happily alone. Job already done. Gospel growth brings variety of difficulties. What about scene three? So turn over to chapter six, verses one to seven. Well, on first sight, it seems like a fairly mundane story, a bit of housekeeping, a kind of just a, a candid historical account of tension at the Christian widow's food bank. But notice what triggers it. Chapter six, verse one. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, again, it's the growth of the community that puts the pressure on. I'm sure there would have been plenty of food to go around when there was only a couple of widows in the church. But add tens or even hundreds more and things get complicated. Actually, more than just that, the growth isn't just numerical, but multicultural. Did you spot that? First one again. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek speaking Jewish widows, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is racial tension. Not just is there enough food to go round, but is there fair distribution between widows from different backgrounds? The Hellenists, Greek-speaking widows, uh, maybe looked down on, or well, they're just different, these newcomers. Are we even sure that they're kosher? Should we really be giving them handouts when they're not like us, they're not our type? You see, it's the fact, again, that the gospel's been growing, an international, multicultural community, community of increasing diversity that triggers the practical problems. So there's another arrow on the screen. And again, there would have been a very simple way to avoid all of this trouble. The apostles find themselves having to diffuse the complaints and set up a, a delegated team to sort it out. I mean, what a faff! It would be much easier not to grow in the first place. If we'd never expanded to include these Hellenists, if we, if we hadn't resourced the international outreach ministry. These Greece, Greek speakers are causing all the difficulties. I actually liked it when we only had a few people to care for in the widow's food bank. I liked it when we didn't have so many people around. You know, I liked it when we only had one morning service. Or before we thought about trying to plant a church. I liked it when it was only people like me coming to church. Things were easier then. You see, the recipe for a quiet life in church is not to grow. And the quickest way not to grow is to stop proclaiming and sharing the gospel. To stop believing and teaching what God says in scripture. You see, because the good news of Jesus, if we do share it, it does bring growth. And growth brings well, a variety of difficulties. That's point one. And there's a simple application question, which is this. Are we up for it? Are we up for it? I think over the last year, we have talked a lot about the kind of costs of planting a church, the, the people costs, the financial costs, the gaps that will be left here at Chalmers. 
And actually, I've been hugely encouraged by, by the support and the progress and the encouragement so far. But here's the thing. Sending off the plant is not job done. It's job started. As we step into that opportunity for growth with more space here at Chalmers and more potential room there at Redeemer, well, that increases our opportunities to reach out, to invite people to come and hear, to keep growing as a gospel community. And so inevitably, difficulties will come. Who knows what they'll be. Local feathers might be ruffled. There'll be gaps being felt. It'll be so easy just to bunker down and focus on ourselves, to to keep church going, just start looking inwards rather than outwards, just quietly having a breather for a while. Now, don't get me wrong, it is important to pace ourselves. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. But remember, the only way to a, to a really quiet life as a church is to stop being what a church is supposed to be, a pillar and buttress of God's truth, holding out the good, good news of Jesus in a world that needs to hear it. And of course, actually, are we up for it isn't the most relevant question, is it? I mean, this is God's household. And as we've been seeing throughout Acts, gospel progress is what Jesus is up for. It's what he's doing. It's what he's committed to, offering forgiveness from Jerusalem to all nations far and wide. And as we'll see in a moment, ultimately his agenda can't be stopped. So... On to point two, and let's zoom in on chapter five, verses 17 to 42. If you want a picture of this episode, it is this up there on the screen. The church is proclaiming that King Jesus saves, but the religious leaders of Jerusalem do their utmost to put a huge stop sign in the way of this expansive growth. They say enough, no more. This has to end. Just give up, go home and live a quiet life. You're not preaching that name Jesus anymore around here. Now, of course, we have already had an, op- an episode of opposition like this. If you've got your Bibles open, just flip back to chapter 4, verse 18, where the authorities were discussing what to do with Peter and John, two of Jesus' spokesmen, after they'd healed a la- lame man in Jesus' name. So verse 18 of chapter 4, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. That was the first attempt to stop this. And we need to realise what they are suggesting could not be more directly in opposition to what Jesus has said. So let me briefly remind us of the story of Acts so far. If you've been here every week, this will be becoming familiar, but hopefully it helps the half-termers. So on the screen, we've, we've had the cross, the, the empty tomb, and Jesus returning to heaven, disappearing from physical sight at the, at the ascension. Luke thinks, even though we can't see Jesus, we can be certain that he's God's risen king. How? Well, because before he left, he made very clear what his agenda would be. End of Luke's gospel, he said, Repentance and forgiveness must be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And that's where Acts picked up the story. So chapter 1, verse 8, he says to these apostles, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and beyond. So it's a simple test. If you want to know whether Jesus is dead and buried or alive and reigning, well, has the apostles' message of forgiveness in Jesus' name spread outwards beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth? 
And the evidence shows that, yes, despite all the odds, humanly speaking, the risen Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit to 12 ordinary scared apostles and all the ordinary fairly wimpy folks like us who've believed their message since to keep spreading this message to the ends of the earth. So far, so good. And up to chapter 7, just as Jesus said would happen, Jerusalem has been filling with this message. But then, the stop sign. So chapter 4, the authorities say stop. 4.19, Peter says, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Jesus said, You will be my witnesses. These Jews in Jerusalem and beyond, these Jewish religious leaders are saying, No, you will not. Do you see the direct clash? It's a power struggle. Jesus' agenda against theirs. And in chapter 5, the heat gets turned up. You will stop. This time, all the apostles are arrested, not just two. Now they're beaten, not just questioned. The authorities are flexing their muscles. You must stop. And actually, if you zoom in on this back half of chapter 5, there are three kind of mini-scenes. And each time they say stop, we'll look at them one by one. So 17 to 25, first off. We've seen the apostles arrested, verse 18, and they're imprisoned. I guess that's to, to kind of soften them up for the morning interrogation. But of course the irony is, they never make it to the morning interrogation. Verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And notice what he says to them. He doesn't say, okay lads... Look, enough's enough. Things are getting a bit tricky with the powers that be around here, so let's just cool things off for a while. Maybe postpone the mission week to next year. Not at all, verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. It's not an inconspicuous spot. Stand in the temple and speak the same message you got arrested for the day before. So verse 21, they entered the temple at daybreak. And began to teach. And at this point, I think some genuine comedy ensues in Luke's account. You see, all the bigwigs are assembled in verse 21. The high priest, the council, the senate. It, it's an intimidating posse. This is going to be a serious telling off to, to put a stop to it once and for all. But, of course, <laughs> the irony is that at that very moment, the apostles are back in the temple proclaiming Jesus. In fact, they're probably wondering to themselves, well, where did all the... All the big chiefs go. How come no one's stopping us? It's great, actually. Verse 24, the head honchos are, are puzzling about how these guys escaped. And verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That's the first mini-scene. Do you see what's going on? The human rulers arrest them to silence them. The divine ruler, Jesus, releases them. To speak. Jesus sends an angel to bust through that stop sign barrier. Jesus won't be stopped. Okay, on to mini scene two. That starts at verse 26, and here we get another arrest. Though actually, ironically, it has to be a voluntary arrest because they're afraid of being stoned by the people. And in verse 28, the accusation's clear we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. They're saying, look, guys. You can praise God as much as you like. You can talk about faith or church or a God we can all believe in. But 
We told you in no uncertain terms not to speak the name Jesus. You're not allowed to speak about him. And just in passing, it is striking, isn't it, that this is still the pressure point today. So speak about God, church, faith, that's relatively easy. But speaking about Jesus specifically, Jesus, the only king, the only saviour of the world, well, that's often the challenge, that's the pain barrier. Why would that be the pressure point? Well, have a look back to chapter 4, verse 12. Remember, Jesus is the one name given among under heaven through which people can be saved. So a generic belief in a nebulous God, it has the advantage of not offending anyone, but it also won't save anyone. How do the apostles respond to the command to stop filling Jesus, Jerusalem with the name of Jesus? Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Do you see the point? This is exactly what Jesus has commissioned them to do, fill Jerusalem, be his witnesses. So who are they going to listen to, God or man? And so verse 30, and this is great, Peter takes the opportunity to preach again the core apostolic gospel. So Jesus' death on the cross his resurrection from the grave, his exaltation as king of all, and the offer of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit to all who repent. Again, it's almost funny. These people are desperate to shut the apostles up, to stop them mentioning Jesus. And what do they get in response? Another sermon about Jesus. <laughs> Actually, another opportunity to hear the message that could forgive even them. That's mini scene too. And then thirdly and finally, there's a, a beating, another charge to stop preaching Jesus. Verse 40. We'll come back to Gamaliel's speech, but look across the page to verse 40. And when they'd called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Here's the final attempt to stop them. It's physical violence this time. Surely that will shut them up. Why don't you just give up and go and live a quiet life? Well, look at how that backfires. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Luke often uses his last lines and his last words deliberately. And Jesus Christ literally has the last word in this episode. So, take a step back. What's going on across this uh, chapter 5? Well, three attempts to stop and silence the message of Jesus by these religious authorities, and three total failures. Every mini-scene ends in Jesus proclaimed, because Jesus will ensure that his message spreads. He sends an angel. He gives boldness to the apostles by his Holy Spirit. He can't be stopped. It's actually, it's a wonderful thing about Jesus. When he sets his face to save people, he can't be stopped. Let me share something that hugely encouraged me this week. Uh, you may know that in Luke's Gospel, the, the prequel to Acts, a huge deal is made of the moment when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. So much of the gospel is him journeying towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And here's the thing, he can't be deterred. 
He knows he's going to die, he's going to pay the price for our sin on the cross, and he is absolutely determined to head in that direction. And so people along the way suggest that he gets distracted, maybe stay around to, to heal locally a bit more, but he moves on. Some people come up and warn him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he, he's going to die and he should avoid it and save his skin. But he ploughs on. He can't be deterred. He set his face in that direction to save people. But here's the thing. Now, in Acts, having died and risen and now reigning in heaven, Jesus is determinedly heading in the opposite direction. He's now set his face to the nations, out from the cross, out from Jerusalem, out from Judea, Samaria, out to the ends of the earth, to Edinburgh, to the borders, to the highlands. His offer of forgiveness, achieved at the cross, must now spread. And when Jesus sets his face to something, he is unstoppable. You don't stop God. So, for those here who are not Christians, I've finally got to the question I, I want to ask you. Well, well done if you've hung in there um, patiently. Here's the question. How do you explain the rise of the early Christian church? And I'm asking that as a historical question, not, not a religious one. How historically, when so much pressure was on to silence this early movement, when the might of the Roman and Jewish authorities executed its leader and intimidated his followers, why didn't these men buckle, given their track record of cowardice? Luke's answer is that Jesus is alive, that they'd seen him with their eyes, couldn't deny what they'd seen, and they were strengthened by him through the Spirit, wouldn't bow to pressure. And honestly, I can't see a more plausible historical explanation than that. Which is exactly, actually, what Gamaliel's speech points out. I wonder if you noticed Gamaliel's speech when we read it. It's a great summary of this section. Just look at Acts 5, verse 35. Gamaliel said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Look, guys, we all know that once a popular leader, claiming to be a big cheese, is killed, eventually the movement fizzles out. And we know Jesus is dead, don't we? So, verse 38, In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man... It will fail. I think that's exactly right. Just think what a low probability, humanly speaking, there was of Christianity taking hold in human history. Unlike some religions, it was not backed by military power. It was one Jewish rabbi killed as a fraud by a Jewish-Roman coalition. And what's left? Well, 11 relatively uneducated men, oh, plus a replacement for the, the 12th guy who betrayed Jesus, Oh, and they've got the idea that God became a man, which is sure to be popular in Jewish society. Oh, and a big chunk of the experts and authorities are certain that Jesus is false and must be stopped. 
If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But of course, Gamaliel carries on, verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. You will not be able to overthrow them. That is why we're sitting here this morning gathering in Jesus' name, because Jesus cannot be stopped. Jesus is not dead and buried, but alive and reigning. Church is not man's idea. This is not just our enterprise. It's God's plan for the universe, as Ephesians is showing us on Sunday nights. If it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. What does that mean for us? Well, we've been saying that Luke is writing to give us certainty. And this section definitely gives us confidence that the message of Jesus is backed with the power of Jesus. So that even when humans deliberately push back against it, try to silence it, persecute its messengers, even then the gospel makes progress and the church is built. In fact, as we go on in Acts, we'll see often it's the very persecution that God uses to spread the message further afield. And there's plenty of evidence of that globally. So I hope this episode is a huge encouragement to us. Jesus is unstoppably taking his good news global. But what about the kind of nitty-gritty application to the office or the staff room or the common room? Is this kind of telling Christian doctors or teachers to, to interrupt every consultation or lesson with a kind of quick sermon? Well, that would be a good thing to, to pick up and chat about in small groups. Um, I think that the basic answer is no. If you look across the rest of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, Christians are encouraged to work hard, do our jobs, to serve our employers well, to be diligent. We don't quite have the role of these apostles to always be standing up and preaching wherever we go. But that said, Christians, all Christians, are involved in witnessing and in making disciples. That's why on the picture I've put everyday Christians up there on the diagram. This may have been a question that's been coming up in your small group or in your own mind. Is it just the apostles who are witnesses or are the rest of us involved? It's a really good question. We shouldn't automatically read ourselves in as if we're always the heroes of bible narratives sometimes we are just the extras the crowds the beneficiaries but in both acts and the new testament it's not just the apostles who speak about jesus remember acts 2 the spirit is poured out on all believers young and old rich and poor high status low status male and female and what's the effect all of us prophesy we all speak for god you see, the apostles defined the message. We all share it. Think of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Go and make disciples of all nations. But most persuasively of all, I think, just flick across to chapter 8 for a moment. Chapter 8, verse 4. This is the moment when the gospel starts to spread out of Jerusalem. And up to this point, it is basically the apostles, up to chapter 7, the apostles speaking the message. They lay the foundation. But in 8 verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So in this section, the apostles are left in Jerusalem, the church is scattered out. And what happens when the church spreads? Verse 4, now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. That happens in various ways. It's not usually a sermon, it can be through friendships through praying for opportunities 
witnessing to the truth in our own lives, being ready to give an answer for the hope we have. Often, practically, it's getting to know colleagues or neighbours kind of outside of, of the pressure of work time. It's quite hard to talk about kind of eternal things when you're on the clock and supposed to be doing something else. But have lunch or do something hospitable and all sorts of opportunities can open up. Now, we'll talk more about practicalities over the coming weeks, but the key point here is actually one of encouragement. Jesus is taking this message global. The apostles define it, but we're all involved, wrapped up in Jesus' unstoppable mission to offer forgiveness to the ends of the earth, to the ends of our streets. So, finally, this brings us to scene three. Now, we'll take this briefly because of time, but whereas scene two was about who has the power, well, this section is about what is the priority. And it's clear, isn't it, the key priority there of ensuring that the preaching of the word, the ministry of word and prayer, keeps happening in a local church. Now, of course, that was absolutely fundamental for the apostles, but I think it is fair to apply this principle across to the church today, to church elders and, and, and deacons in practical service. Elders are called to be shepherds of the flock, and we do that by feeding and protecting and guiding under the authority of Jesus, using the word of Jesus. That's why elders have to be able to teach. And notice how easily that can be knocked off course. See, in a growing gospel church, there are so many other issues that arise. So here, as we saw earlier, it's tensions at the food bank of Christian widows. And I want us to notice what the apostles don't say to resolve this. So the, the complaint arises, verse 1, and in verse 2 they don't say, this is so important and so urgent, we need to drop everything. We need to drop the Bible teaching we planned or the time of prayer and preparation for it, and we need to just sort this out ourselves. No, there's a clear priority, verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now I realise, especially given I'm a Bible teacher saying that myself, it might sound a bit self-important, you know, kind of, oh, preaching is so important, I can't possibly help serve the coffee or move chairs. But it helps to take a step back and just remember what's at stake here. The word they're talking about is this one message of Jesus that can save people. It's this proclamation of Jesus from all the scriptures, enabling people to be forgiven for eternity. And also remember from last week that the message of Jesus is actually what keeps us growing as a church in generosity and service and genuine commitment and community with each other. And so if our Bible teachers started spending the bulk of their time in practical care so that we're not being prayed for, we're not being fed, well, pretty soon the community would start to fracture. We've been hearing on Sunday evening in, in Ephesians, we need Bible teachers to equip all of us to speak truth in love so the church builds itself up in love. Without that, we won't grow to maturity. So there is a clear priority. And if you do get the sense that the main Bible teachers here are also running around covering lots of the practicalities, well, something is not right. I'm sure that's an area we can keep making progress in. But notice 
that just because preaching the word is the priority for them, the apostles, doesn't mean you can just ignore this practical care. Like it doesn't matter. See, verse 3 is just as important as verse 2. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. A key part of wise and godly leadership of the church is to properly delegate practical care to godly people who will ensure that folks are actually well looked after. I'm encouraged to say there are many people in this church family who serve in that way and are a huge blessing to all of us. So take one final step back and look at all of this section. I said last week this is all a good reality check that various problems will come as the gospel advances. But I want to close by saying I just love the the combination of spiritual insight and just practical wisdom in this section. So yeah, Satan is behind much of the pushback that goes on, the counter-attack against the gospel. We need to pray. That's why it's worth coming to a Tuesday church family prayer meeting. But actually that doesn't mean we, we don't require good management and delegation in a church, wisely sharing the load. But even that doesn't isn't isn't the only picture. We also need Jesus to give us boldness to witness to his name, even when there's pressure. And that combination of spiritual insight, boldness in witness, and and wise organisation will mean, chapter 6, verse 7, that the word of God continues to increase. And here the number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is powerful, powerful to save, powerful to grow community. And thank you that the Lord Jesus is unstoppable in his commitment to offering salvation to the nations. And we pray so much that we would be a church that keeps trusting him and sharing in his great work, even when it's costly. In Jesus' name, amen.